Let's go ahead and pray before we open the word together this morning. Father, we do pray that you would lift us up into the heavens even now, that we might hear your voice, that we might seize a hold of your truth. We might find that our hearts are strangely warmed within us, and that our souls are impacted by the truth of your word, for truly then it would be well with our souls. Teach us your truth, we pray this day, and give us glimpses of your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 23. This is the holy and errant word of God. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, we're coming to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we'll probably spend another week or two weeks in it, and then in chapter 8, we are out of the Sermon on the Mount. And here at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving us very strong warnings. Uh, in our passage today, He is giving us two warnings. He is warning us about that which is without us, outside of us, and that which is within us or inside of us. He wants us to be careful what we hear without us and what we hear within us. And I want to look at those two warnings this morning. As a preacher, I am committed to what has been called the Lectio Continua way of preaching, Uh, Not always. We took a little break from that at the beginning of the year, in the first three weeks of the year, where we uh, preach topically on the subject of prayer. But but normally, we follow the Lectia Continua way of preaching, and that is that we preach expository consecutive sermons through a book of the Bible. And there are a lot of reasons for that, why we just walk our way through different books of the Bible. But one of the chief reasons is surely this, is because it prevents the preacher from skipping over hard texts. 
or texts that people don't want to hear, which are often the hard texts, uh, like this morning. Uh, you and I need uh, the hard texts. Uh, they're not anyone's favorite. Uh, no one has ever said that this is their favorite Bible passage. No one. It's just not a popular passage because it's filled with warnings. And yet, it's warnings that we need to hear. And so I want to do my best at explaining them this morning and applying them uh, for us as we see them here. First, Jesus warns us, gives us a warning about what we hear without, outside of ourselves. In particular, Jesus has in mind false prophets. Now, when we hear the word prophet, we immediately think, well, we don't really need this warning then, because there aren't prophets today. Because when we think prophets, we think of those that are future tellers. They're telling something about what will happen in the future. And that was true of prophets. That was part of their function, but that was not the main part of their responsibility. A prophet in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament was someone that was bringing the Word of God to bear and was applying that Word of God to God's people. Now, at times, they would tell the future, but even as they told the future, they were just doing this. They were bringing the Word of God to bear upon the people. And so, we can, I think, very clearly apply this not just to the office of prophet as it was in the Old Testament, but also to the preacher or to the teacher of the Bible. And Jesus here is giving us a warning about those that would preach, that those that would teach, those that would prophesy. He warns us to beware. He says, beware about these false prophets, these false teachers, these false preachers. Did he have some particular people in mind? We don't really know. Uh, there's a lot of debate in scholarly circles about, well, it was probably these people, or it was these people, or they taught this, or they taught that. We, we don't really know. We aren't sure. But it is clear that he's warning us to be on guard against such false teaching. He says, beware, that is, be vigilant, be watchful, be on guard. Why? Because he says they will come. That's what he says. Beware of false prophets who come to you. The people of God will always attract false prophets like honey to bees. They, they will come to the church. They do. They come. And so Jesus is warning us here, even as he just did in the previous passage where he said, look, there are two gates and there are two paths and there are two destination, so he's saying there are two kinds of prophets, two kinds of preachers, two kinds of teachers. There are those that are true, and there are those that are false. They come. But notice that when they come, they always come concealed. And so Jesus is saying we especially have to beware they come to you, he says, in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. False prophets don't announce and say, look, I'm a false prophet who has come. They don't do that. Or there would be no danger. So we'd say, oh, there they are. Let's steer away from what he's teaching and what he's preaching and what he's saying. 
They come as the most innocent of animals, like sheep. Or even maybe more importantly, they come looking just like us. Like the sheep that are part of the flock. In fact, they will come with the right credentials. They will come with seminary degrees. They will come with resumes that are as long as their arms. They will write books. They will speak at conferences. They will even be interviewed on television as Christian authority. They will come and they appear to be no threat. They won't announce themselves, no, just the opposite. So you have to beware, Jesus says. They will come concealed. So let's try and understand how do we determine a false prophet or a teacher, what they look like so we can be on guard. Well, Jesus says that we will know them by their fruit. And one of those fruits is what they communicate with their words. You will know them by what they communicate or what they don't communicate by their words. Let's make it abundantly clear here at the beginning that false prophets are not people who make a mistake in their teaching or make a mistake in their preaching. Uh, Everyone does that. The best of preachers, the best of teachers makes mistakes. Uh, That is not what Jesus is speaking of. But rather what Jesus has in mind is those who regularly err. This is what marks them and they refuse to repent from what they have been teaching. They just want to persevere in it. What do those errors look like? What is it that they communicate or don't communicate? Well, it could be a myriad of things. But I find it especially interesting, just based upon what Jesus has just preached in the Sermon on the Mount, in the very previous passage, that much of the false doctrine that we hear, much of the false theology that we hear, is contrary to the the very things that Jesus just spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount. False teachers often deny that the Christian way is hard. They often deny that the gate is narrow and that the path that that goes through that broad gate and that goes down that easy road is a path that leads to destruction. They won't say it's hard. They won't say that about the Christian life. And why won't they say that? Because people don't like that message. It is easy to draw a crowd by preaching an easy path. But the Bible never presents the Christian life void of effort or void of morality or void of looking different from the world. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are to strive. The writer of Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Jesus taught that the way is hard. False teaching will also tend to deny that the gate is narrow. False prophets will offer more ways than faith in Christ alone, by grace alone. Now make no mistake, false prophets and teachers will preach and teach Christ. Christ will always be on their lips, but it will not be Christ alone. And that word alone is all important. Faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, is the heart of the gospel. And when the heart of the gospel is lost, the Christian faith is lost. And the Christian faith is lost when we add anything to Christ or we take anything away from Christ. Listen, 
I think people can get a great deal of comfort out of all kinds of different religious practices and religious rules and adding things to Christ. There can be all kinds of comfort from that. But if that comfort or if that religious practice leads us to trust in and rely upon that rather than Christ alone, it's not helping you at all. No. To jettison all just for Christ. Whether that is a prayer prayed or whether that's a discipline that is embarked upon or whether that is some kind of pursuit or something practiced or a work that's done, He alone is the sufficient and necessary Savior of mankind. And so anything added to Christ or anything taken away from Christ is false. And it's not helpful to you. Not only will false prophets often communicate an easy path and a broad gate, but they will also never speak of where that broad gate leads. But Jesus does. He had no problem talking about hell. He talked about it often. But hell is not a popular topic. It is something that makes all of us uncomfortable as soon as we say the word and we begin to hear any teaching on it and we kind of squirm inside and rightfully so. And so false prophets and teachers and preachers will seldom if ever mention it. As Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into, into myths. My friends, we are not simply looking for comfort from our pastors and our teachers and our preachers. We aren't simply looking for that. We don't want to be lulled asleep spiritually. The gospel rubs up against our fallen nature. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, he says. If you and I are never made uncomfortable by what we hear, we are probably listening to the wrong person. It's meant to make us uncomfortable at times. We need to be challenged, all of us. The preacher who never offends anyone isn't preaching. Just as clearly, if he is always offending everyone, he isn't preaching either. There's that old line about preaching that says that the preacher's job is to provide comfort for the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And we need a generation of preachers like that. But false ones will always be with us. They will come. And they will come in concealment, but we can identify them by their fruit, why, by what they communicate. But, but it isn't just what they communicate with their words. Jesus here goes on to say that what they communicate by how they live. He says, if you are aware, if you're watching, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not just the words that they say, but the fruits, their living, what shows, manifests in their life. 
He's saying, test that. It may take time, but test that. And this is one of the most important reasons, not to, to jump on the new pastoral, popular preacher bandwagon, whoever that is. It takes time. Watch their lives. This is one of the reasons that you and I do not want to gain our most sustenance, the, the most teaching that we receive from those that are outside our local church. No, we want to receive it in our local church because we're near that pastor. We're near those elders, and we can watch. We can test the fruit. Are they going to be perfect? Absolutely not. But you can see whether they truly believe what they preach and whether what they are preaching is really true. Anyone can for a time look like one of the sheep and all of us can look like sheep from a distance. It's in the distance that a thorn bush has berries on it and those berries appear to look like grapes from a distance. Uh, it is from a distance that as Jesus is saying here that Thistles have flowers on them, and they appear to look like figs. But when you draw near, when you draw closer, it's very clear that these aren't berries and these aren't figs. But that takes time, and that takes proximity. All that one does and all that one says is the fruit of our lives, and we can deceive one another for a time, but eventually the truth will manifest itself. A healthy tree bears healthy fruit. And a dead tree bears dead fruit. It's not immediately noticeable. But in time, it shows. I have two trees in my entire yard, front and back. They're both in my front yard. And I've been watching one of these two trees over the past couple of years, the first year, the leaves just looked a little shriveled to me, and I thought, huh, I'll water it more. The second year, there were leaves missing in different parts of the tree. And now this third year, the whole top of the tree had no leaves, and the bottom half of the tree had shriveled leaves. And so there are benefits to pastoring in a land-grant university city. We have all kinds of experts around here. So I called one of our experts, Dr. Mark Whalen. He's an expert in trees and bugs and bugs and trees. I'm not exactly sure what it's called, but he's a tree and bug expert. And so I invited Dr. Mark Whalen out, and he came to my house, and he stepped into my front yard, and he walked over to my tree. And after he had looked at it for all of about 10 seconds, he said in that authoritative, professorial voice, he said, Jason, your tree is dead. Yeah. He said, come here, I want to show you something. And we looked, and he showed me the branches, and he showed me the trunk, and he said, you see all these holes? And he started pointing them out. I hadn't seen them from a distance. I hadn't seen them before. He said, these are little bugs that have burrowed into your tree, beetles, and they've eaten it from the inside. They've taken all the life out of it in the middle. 
There's no life in there. It appeared to have a little bit of life for one season. It appeared to have a little bit of life for another season. But the truth is it was dead on the inside. And over time and with proximity, I could say with the same authoritative voice, I agree, Dr. Mark Whalen, it's dead. It's dead. We have to be on guard. Examine what we see. Now, here's the trick. We have to be on guard, and yet we have to refrain from playing the critic and playing the cynic. And that is a great trap. It is just as devastating to receive nothing from no one as to receive everything from everyone. And there are so many Christians that fall into this trap. We're busy playing the critic. And it stunts spiritual growth. When all we're doing is sitting and listening to every sermon and every teaching and every preaching and everything that we hear, and it is always through the critic's lens. And it's always as a cynic. And we don't allow it to hit here because it's trapped up here. This is the great trap. It's uncharitable and it's ungodly. It will stunt our growth of our souls if we play the critic. So we don't play the critic. We tend to our own souls. We want to be on guard but not be the critic. We want to beware but not be the cynic. And that leads to Jesus' second warning. We must beware of what we hear within. That voice that is within us must be true when it keeps preaching to us, peace, peace, all is peace. Jesus has already transitioned to the individual in verses 17, 19, as he says, every tree. He's not just concerned with the prophets and the teachers and the preachers, but also with the listeners, the congregants. He says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that may sound very strange to our ears because we know that someone has to be able to say, Lord, Lord, enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul says there in Romans 10, he says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You have to confess that Jesus is Lord to be saved. And yet Jesus is saying that words are not enough. Because with our words, we may be able to pull the wool over one another's eyes. We may be able to pull the wool even over our own eyes, but we cannot pull the wool over God's eyes. He doesn't need time. He sees. The right words are not enough. It could be that some of these people that Jesus has in mind are those that have responded to the the false prophets, these false teachers and preachers, and they've accepted that word, and so now it marks their lives. But regardless, Jesus is warning that calling ourselves Christians or claiming to be Christians or saying that we are followers of Christ, declaring that He is Lord, He's saying, look, that's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Judas walked with Christ for three years. He cast out demons. He did miracles. 
yet he was not converted. John Wesley was the founding member of the Holiness Club at Oxford, and he would pastor for 10 years in ministry and preach, and he was not converted. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was a monk and would worship day in and day out and sing the psalms and spend whole nights in prayer and found out that he was not converted. My favorite is Abraham Kuyper from history. Abraham Kuyper, that great Dutch theologian and uh, preacher and eventually became the president of the entire country. He was preaching week in and week out and one day one of the women of his congregation, older women, invited him over to her house. Because she realized that he wasn't converted. And so she invited him over to share the gospel with him. And he came to saving faith. If that is true of pastors at times, it is also true of the person in the pew. Many come to church, many volunteer in the church and never miss a Sunday, but they remain unconverted. The words are uttered, but they have not been changed from death to life. I have a relative, had a relative, that he used to brag to me all the time and tell me all the time, I, Jason, never missed a single Sunday school class as a child growing up. Never missed. He probably told me that a dozen times while I was a kid and a young adult. And yet I don't think it was until he was on his deathbed and I was sitting next to him. I said, can I read the scriptures with you? Can I pray with you? That he actually accepted Christ in faith. He knew the creeds. He knew the Lord's Prayer. He went to Sunday school every single Sunday. It was not converted. Jesus says words are not enough. Some will say, Lord, Lord, and he will not give them entrance. We'll say, well, then we must need works added to our words. And that is true. In one sense, we need works. We are saved unto good works, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. Fruitfulness is evidence of the Christian life as much as evidence of true preachers and true prophets and true teachers. But notice... Doing the work of God in and of itself is not enough. Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. They may even appear to be passionate about what they're doing. They say, Lord, Lord, it is emphatic. They're excited about what they have done. Jesus says, I do not know you. They don't know God. And here is one of the greatest traps of religion. It is so easy to be so busy about the work of God that we forget the God of the work. I've watched pastor after pastor fall because they're so busy doing the things of God. But they knew not God. Get 
gifts are never greater than grace in the economy of God. Gifts are never greater than grace in the economy of God. And there's a warning here that we can be so very close to spiritual things and yet we cannot have God. I mean, Balaam prophesied. He prophesied against wicked, unconverted people and he was just as wicked and unconverted as they were. Judas preached and he cast out demons and he did miracles and he preached to these crowds of lost people and he was as lost as those crowds of people. We can say words are needed, we can say works are needed, but they are both insufficient to save us because they are but the fruits of the one thing that is sufficient, knowing Jesus. Better stated, Jesus, knowing you. The words are only true, and the works are only true as they are a fruit of that which has filled us, the grace of Christ. That we are united to Him, that we have been brought from death to life, that no longer is this a heart of stone, but it's a heart of flesh. And it is from that life that the words and the works matter. He says, I know you. The Christian knows Jesus and is known by Jesus. It's Super Bowl Sunday. And I don't think I've told you this before. But I know one of the stars of the Super Bowl. I know Tom Brady. Some consider him the GOAT, the greatest of all time, quarterback. And I know Tom Brady. In fact, Tom Brady... Uh, I often see him. He is one of the last things I see each night before I go to bed. I have a friend that uh, I pastored years ago, and he moved to Boston, and, and he is a big New England Patriots fan, and so he sent me a Tom Brady t-shirt. And as often happens in my home, when it is a good t-shirt and it's a soft t-shirt, it is no longer my t-shirt. So Leah has co-opted that t-shirt, and she often wears it to bed, so he is often the last thing I see before I turn off the lights. It's Tom Brady. I know him. I know him because I've read his Wikipedia page. I know all about him. I know his wife's name. I know that he has three dogs, and I even know the three dogs' names. They are Fluffy, Scooby, and Lua. I've watched him in more football games, way too many Super Bowls. He is calm, he is cool, he is confident. I know Tom Brady. And I don't know Tom Brady. And he surely doesn't know me. But I know the person that wears a shirt to bed each night. 
know Leah through and through. I know what she's often thinking. I can often complete a sentence that she's getting ready to say. I know what makes her happy. I know what makes her laugh. I know what makes her sad. I know what makes her angry. I know her. A Christian is one who knows Christ and is known by Christ. And that is the only certificate worthy of admission into the gates of heaven. That and that alone. It's not knowing about Christ. It's knowing Christ. Better stated him knowing you. It's quite an exclusive statement of authority that Jesus issues here. He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. He proclaims. He proclaims that he is the defining factor. That a person's relation to him is the only determinative factor whether one gets in heaven or not. This is an exclusive authoritative claim. It is based upon their relationship to me. Whether they get in or they don't. Whether I know them. Whether they're with me. This alone. Are you known? And do you know? And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, he said in John 17. Words are necessary, but they're not enough. Works are necessary, but they're not enough because they only can flow from a Christ-changed, Christ-centered, Christ-redeemed life. One must be known and one must know. It's our relation to him that is all important. Lee and I lived in Dallas uh, when we were in seminary, when I was in seminary, and we had a good friend there in Dallas. He is, is, was one of the top cardiologists in the world. Leah actually nannied for their family. I remember one day when uh, I came home, either from work or from seminary, I can't remember, Leah was already home, and I asked her how her day was, and she said, well, it's a... It was a good day. It was a shorter day. She said, I got to come home early. I said, well, why was that? And she said, well, this, this friend of ours that she nannied for their family, she said, he came home early from work. I said, well, why was that? And she said, well, he told me a story. He said that he was there at the office, and all of a sudden he got a phone call, and the phone call was from a person that said, I'm sending a private helicopter to your office to pick you up because my gardener has just had a heart attack and I need to fly you out to my estates to tend to my garden. Well, I'm curious, who in the world has a private helicopter and sends it to go pick up a cardiologist to tend to their gardener? And so I asked Leah who that might be. 
Now, Leah, though she wears Tom Brady's shirts to bed, she is not enamored with fame or wealth or people of power or prestige at all. Uh, and she said, well, I, I don't remember. I think it was something like, and we're in Dallas. She said, I think it was, his name was Parrot. And I said, you mean Perot? Yeah, that's it. It was Perot. This is the kind of circles that this cardiologist walked in. He used to take us to his country club sometimes for pasta night. Love pasta night. It was one of the more exclusive clubs in Dallas. And we would show up and I would get to the front door and he would meet us at the front door. And we would walk past this table where there was a person that sat that was security of sorts, and he would just say, he's with me. He's with me. And we just walk. We walk past a waiter, past a waitress, past a manager of the complex, and he would say, he's with me. We'd sit there and we would eat dinner and the check would come. And I would just point to him and say, I'm with him. <laughs> the only credentials needed were my identification with him. That's all that mattered. No questions were asked. No diving into anything else. All that mattered was my identification with him. He's with me. I'm with him. This is the only admittance card to the kingdom of heaven. This is the only passport that gives you entrance into the gates of heaven. I'm with him. He says, he, she is with me. I know them. That's it. Is that true of you this morning? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, give you praise this day for being a God of salvation. We're thankful that it cannot be by our words, it cannot be by our works, but that it alone has to be by your grace and by the saving life and death and resurrection of our Savior. How that removes all boast and how that gives all comfort. Help us to be those that listen to your word and have our lives shaped by it. And help us to be those who know Christ and are known by him all the days of our lives. It's in his holy name we pray. Amen.